Welcome to Cannabis Science Today. My name is Emily Feda, and I will be your guide as we attempt to better understand cannabis and psychedelic medicine through conversations with scientists and researchers. I have a really exciting announcement before we get to today's episode. And to celebrate the end of season three, we are going to be doing a giveaway. Um, So we're going to be giving away a basket of amazing CBD products to one lucky listener who writes us a five-star review on iTunes. So that could be you. Um, If you want to be eligible to win, please leave a review, a five-star review on iTunes, mention your favorite episode, and then go ahead and screenshot the review and email it to CannabisScienceToday at gmail.com. If you have already left us a review in the past, um, you're still eligible. Just go ahead and send the screenshot to CannabisScienceToday at gmail.com, and then I'll know how to get in touch with you. So thank you so much for your support. Um, It's always just such a gift to have these conversations and to share them with the world. And if this podcast has brought you any value or you've learned something new from it, I would be so grateful to hear from you. So thank you, and on to the show. Today we are featuring Dr. Jordan Zager, who is a biochemist and the founder of Dewey Scientific, a cannabis agritech company. Dr. Zager has done a lot of really interesting chemical analysis on the compounds found in cannabis resin and in the trichomes of the cannabis plant. And today we dive into one of his research papers that compared the chemotype data and gene expression data of nine different commercial cannabis strains. So he shares what they learned about the network of genes involved in the biosynthesis of both cannabinoids and terpenoids. We also talk about some more cutting-edge research about other volatile compounds, such as esters, that are found in the cannabis plant but we still don't know a lot about. And finally, we talk about breeding and how breeding could be a really powerful tool to prevent powdery mildew or other common plant diseases and how these agricultural techniques could really help the cannabis industry evolve. So Jordan, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. And I would love to get started by just hearing a little bit more about your scientific background. And when you look back on your your journey, what, what first piqued your interest in cannabis? Yeah, well, first off, thanks for having me. Um, yeah. My first interest in cannabis, and I think it was, I knew my sister's, older sisters were smoking it when I was a teenager, and was, I think, a little jealous. I was like, oh, they got to do this cool thing that I'm too young to do. Uh, but as I got older, I, I just remember one night, I think it was, I don't know, I was in my early 20s, I just had, had gotten access to, like, good, uh, good cannabis and, like, uh, a selection, right? Before it was, like, you know, I took what the dealer had. Um, and finally I had a dealer who had selections and I, for the first time experienced the entourage effect. And I remember sitting up late at night on Google, just looking and consuming, looking for and consuming anything, um, related to, you know, why, why can a certain strain have a different effect on the user? Um, and that led down a rabbit hole of terpenes and trichomes and and then all sorts of, you know, maybe more magic things like, you know, how, how you treat your plants and, you know the temperature of the water, more, more maybe folkloric uh, anecdotes. But I just remember that night being a, an undergrad with a, with a science degree, um, looking at some of these responses on the internet and just thinking, man, we can do so much better. Um, 
And granted, you know, I was 12, 13 years ago. Um, Wait, sorry. So let me interrupt. So this was when you were in college and you were, this was when you were high. Exactly. Yeah. I was oh, a wow. college, okay. college student thinking, <laughs> why do I feel this way when this other way made me feel that way? Okay. Okay. So it's so pretty nerdy, just kind of launching right into the research. It, exactly. Yeah. I, I I don't think I really had a, a stoner phase. I was just a scientist who, who loved it and wanted to learn more about it. Cool. And then how did that kind of lead to, to this current work um, as a kind of a scientist? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it was also around that time. Um, I was on like the, the pre-med track. So for those who are unfamiliar, the pre-med track is, well, you need to study a life science in college. Um, you need to do X number of hours of volunteer work. You need to do research work in an academic lab. Um, you had to do all these, jump through all these hurdles. And um, I was just like flat out exhausted from jumping through hurdles. And at the time I was working in a research lab uh, that worked on uh, biofuels, but plant biochemistry. Um, and I was also volunteering at a local hospital. Um, and I just remember thinking, man, I like my work in the research lab so much better than the work at the hospital. Um, and sort of got off that, that pre-med track, got more into, you know, biotechnology and its um, applications in agriculture. And, you know, I, I think I was just working in the lab one day and it's sort of like, I really like this. I can do this for a career. And I also really like cannabis. Maybe one day I can have both of them be the same career. That, that is the application of biotechnology to cannabis. Cool. Well, that's that's great that you ended up here. Um, well, let's just dive right in because I, I mentioned this to you before we got on, but all of our listeners, our listeners love terpenes. And this is a really, really important and popular topic, I think, in the industry. So, so I want to discuss your paper, um, Gene Networks Underlying Cannabinoid and Terpenoid Accumulation in Cannabis. And it sounds like in this research, you looked at the genetic sequences from nine commercial cannabis strains. So yeah, I'm wondering if you can just kind of walk us through this research study. Let's start with what strains you looked at and how you, how you selected them. Yeah, so the, the research, what we did was we looked at um, gene expression levels in, in the nine commercial varieties. Um, and so the, the way I like to think of gene expression is that um, there's the genome and it's always there. It's, you know, the, the entire list of genes that could possibly be used by the plant. Um, and then there's gene expression. And that's a measure of which genes are actually being used by the plant. And not only are they being used, but like how high or low are they turned on? Um, so that's what we looked at with these nine varieties um, and oh man, it's, it's been a little while since, um, since we, we did do this study, but, um, the nine varieties, we had a sour diesel, um, we had a canapsu, so that's like a, you know, one-to-one THC to CBD plant. Um, we were working with, I believe it was called, um, blackberry kush, just sort of a, a standard kush variety. Um, we had a black lime. This was something that I, to this day, I don't think I've smelled anything that quite smelled like key lime, um, you know, like, like this plant did maybe because it was fresh and living in most of the, the cannabis I've come across since has been dry. Uh, but I just remember at the time thinking, wow, this is remarkable. Um, we also worked with a land race variety, uh, that we were calling mama Thai. I don't know if that ever really got commercialized, but they had it, the, the farm we were working with had it, had just a couple copies of it in their greenhouse. And we looked at it and said, Oh, this looks different. You know, we should, we should definitely try this one out in our study. Um, 
we worked with something called uh, Valley Fire. Uh, we worked with a cherry cam. Um, we worked with uh, white cookies, and we also worked with, um, I believe it was called Turple. Um, and that this was another plant that just had an aroma that was out of this world. Um, so yeah, that was, those, that's what we looked at there. And what did you learn? Yeah, so we, we learned, I mean, we learned a lot. So what we did was we, we, right, we took that snapshot of gene expression. So what we did was we were working in the sixth week of flower. So this is really when um, cannabis flower is really putting on trichomes. It's really starting to accumulate oils in the forms of terpenes and cannabinoids. Um, so it's, it was reasonable that this is when they're most active in producing the compounds that we want them to uh, produce. So, so therefore, gene expression should be a reflection of what's required to produce these terpenes and these cannabinoids. Um, <clears throat> but we also did pretty comprehensive um, chemotyping work where we looked, well, of course, we had to look at what terpenes and cannabinoids there were and then in what, what ratios. So some of the, the interesting things we found um, were that while well, using the RNA-seq data, so the gene expression data, we could actually differentiate these strains based on how they're um, expressing their genes. Um, so when we did this, you know, in, when you do anything in science, replicates are critical. Um, so we, what we first saw was, okay, even the replicate data, right? So we had three cherry chems, we had three turples, uh, three of all those, those varieties that the gene expression patterns of the replicates uh, matched each other. So they sort of, they didn't uh, get crossover with anything else. That's great. That shows that our, our data was good. Um, but then beyond that, using the same data compared to the chemotype data that we saw very similar uh, groupings. So, you know, maybe the, the cherry chem and the white cookies were very similar in a um, gene expression standpoint. They also had very similar um, chemotype profiles, if that makes sense. Okay, so could you break that down a little bit more? So, of course, there are um, the genes that every or so like the the sequence that every plant has, and then the the expression. So the ones that are actually showing up, um, like the and that would be more of the the phenotypes, like the physical characteristics, and the the chemotypes, like the compounds in the plant. Is is that correct? There's kind of two different data sets you're looking at. Yeah. So in our data set, we didn't look at uh, the genes themselves. We didn't do any genome sequencing. Um, this okay. was all what's what we refer to as the transcriptome. Uh, so that, that's the sequencing of the genes that are expressed. And so this is RNA sequencing, whereas more uh, the, the traditional, um, you know, DNA sequence, that's, that's DNA sequencing. Um, so what we're, what we're looking at was only the genes that were being expressed. Um, so in, in biology, there's this, um, this theme that's taught, it's, it's referred to as the central dogma of biology. And what that states is that DNA gets replicated um, and transcribed into RNA. And then that RNA gets translated into proteins. And then those proteins, some of them are enzymes where they catalyze um, chemical reactions. Others are structural proteins where they provide structure or shape or even sometimes function to the cell. Um, other times they're transport proteins where they make sure that, um, you know, metabolites or, or nutrients are flowing from one cell to the next. So we're sort of looking at that center, that middle section of the central dogma, that being the, the RNA, that genes are transcribed and expressed. Um, 
So rather than you know look at a gene that maybe is only required when the seed or when the plant is developing from a seed, um, we were only looking at the genes that were required to produce cannabinoids and, and terpenes inside of trichomes. So even what was really cool about this study was we weren't just looking at flower, even you know looking at leaf from plant to plant to plant. We were isolating trichomes off of fresh flowers. Um, and looking at the gene expression of the trichomes themselves. Okay, okay. And and when you were looking at, so you're looking at nine different strains, and they're all kind of having different um, expressions. And and then you were saying that some of them were kind of grouped more similarly than others. And was that like, like what kind of similarities stood out to you? What kind of similarities were most different? Was it the actual, like the terpenes or what compounds um, kind of stood out to you most when you were looking at the data? Yeah, I think what was um, really cool at the time was there was only a handful of um, terpene synthases that had been characterized or, or identified in cannabis. So terpene synthases are the, the genes and then the proteins that are responsible for terpene formation. Um, so, you know, when we started this project, it was, okay, we know that these cannabis plants are producing all of these terpenes, but the scientific community only knows about the sequ- the genes for about four or five of them. Mm. So for us, it was sort of like, okay, let's, let's find these genes that are responsible for the formation of these other um, Terpenes. And so that's what we were able to do was, was using this data, we were able to characterize six new terpene synthases that had not been previously discovered in cannabis. Okay, wow. And what is the difference between like a terpene synthase and then like, okay, so like a limonene synthase and then the actual expression of limonene in a plant? Is it is that the same or are those kind of different um, stages along the, you know, whatever whatever chemistry the plant is is producing? Yeah, so it's, it, it does depend on a few things. Um, limonene or the, any, any terpene, uh, they're, they're volatile in, by nature, right? They, they want to evaporate. They don't want to stick around. Um, so, it, you know, if it, let's say you have super high gene expression for limonene, and the expectation would be that, yeah, that plant produces a lot of limonene. Um, that could definitely be the case, but there could also be other, um, influences like temperature that could mislead that finding. Um, you know, if, 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 you know, your, your greenhouse is sitting at 95 degrees, um, but your terpene synthase expression is through the roof, I'm sure it's producing a lot of terpenes, but you're probably losing a lot of it to, um, volatilization in that, that hot greenhouse. Um, if that, if that makes sense. But as as far as I know, like no one's really investigated, at least directly with cannabis, no one's really investigated. Is there that correlation between gene expression and terpene abundance? Um, Generally with terpenes, it is a pathway that is transcriptionally regulated, meaning that, that yes, when you have high gene expression, you most likely have high um, metabolite production. Okay. So I guess to, to ask my question in a different way too. So you discovered six new terpene syntheses, but does that mean you discovered six new terpenes or is it just like the synthase is just the enzyme that's responsible for kind of creating terpenes that have already been identified? Yeah, the terpenes had, had definitely already been identified. I don't know if they had necessarily been identified in cannabis. My guess is, yeah, they probably were. 
Um, <clears throat> but just that the gene responsible for those had not been characterized. Okay. Okay. So, and I'm sure that has really interesting um, repercussions in breeding or, or can really lead to kind of a lot more discovery um, when it comes to being able to produce those terpenes consistently. Absolutely. Absolutely. And another thing that I thought was really interesting about um, the strains that you selected was that it was kind of a mix of indica dominant, sativa dominant, and then also hybrid. And that that is something that I think is uh, always a conversation in the industry and something we've talked about before on this podcast that, you know, just because something is categorized as an indica or a sativa in a dispensary, it, it doesn't necessarily really it's not necessarily indica- indicative of its, you know, its its genes or any of its, um, you know, characteristics. So I wonder, yeah, I wonder what you kind of, what, what your take on that was um, through this, this research project. Yeah. So um, there, there were definitely some frustrations uh, throughout the research project. One was being that the, the farm itself didn't only really wanted to, to communicate and cooperate with the lab we were working with, uh, the, the testing facility. So we didn't get a, a great idea from the growers, you know, how they would classify their strains. Um, so we, we had to rely on Leafly um, for, you know, we type in the variety and basically what the Leafly community had stated for that strain was sort of what we went with. Um, I think in the time since then, right, th- this work took place in the summer of 2017. Um, so quite a, quite a while ago. Um, <clears throat> That, that in the time since then, a lot of cannabis research has come out, um, you know, sort of either not necessarily wiping out the idea of this indica sativa hybrid, but sort of claiming that there's no fundamental genetic difference between what we might be classifying as indica sativa or whatever else. Um, I know that when we, we started this project, like the, the cannabis literature was so shallow at the time that there was still papers referring to cannabis as cannabis indica versus cannabis sativa, right? The scientific name is cannabis sativa. Um, and in the time since then, even uh, researchers have, have basically pointed to, no, it's all cannabis sativa, full stop. There might be sub, sub varieties, but even then I think the data is pointing towards, it, this is really all sort of the same, same crop. We're just getting, you know, different expressions of it. Mm-hmm. And of all of the kind of different strains w- that you did look at within this research study, um, were you kind of noticing, were you noticing like a trend in terpenes? Was, were there, was there like a one or two or a handful that were kind of most common and most occurrent in all of these different strains or was it all over the map? Yeah. So what, what we found was for the most part, you know, everything had limonene, caryophylline, and myrcene. Um, I think that that's sort of the case across the board with cannabis today. I don't want to say guaranteed, but odds are incredibly high that one of the top terpenes, or sorry, the most abundant terpene in any given variety is one of those three terpenes, limonene, myrcene, or caryophylline. Um, <clears throat> so at the time we were, we were pretty surprised by that. Um, and then other, other than that, you know, I think, I think it was with that mama tie that, what was described to us as a land race variety. Um, it did have a markedly different terpene profile than, um, than anything else we were looking at, but I mean, it, it still did have myrcene, limonene, and 
and carry off on. Mm-hmm. So when you think about this kind of from, you know, a business perspective or um, with with breeding interests, do you think that these terpenes are the ones that kind of are the most abundant or the most consistent because they are the most popular with consumers? Or I guess what, what kind of, um, what do you think kind of the future of terpene expression and exploration could be? Do you think there's more terpenes that, haven't been identified, or maybe I don't even say that they haven't been identified, but do you think there's kind of opportunity to keep breeding and discovering and like, you know, new compounds in this plant? Yeah, I think there's, there's definitely an opportunity um, for further discovery. I mean, I think a, a critical first step is that we need to have a unified language and reporting system uh, between testing labs. Um, you know, speaking from our experience in Washington state, um, you know, we can work with, I believe it's 13 different testing labs uh, that are accredited by the, the Liquor and Cannabis Board here. Um, and we've worked with four or five of them and no, no two report the same list of terpenes when you ask for a terpene test. Um, so that, that's the first hurdle we have to address is we, the research community and even, even breeders don't know what is possibly new, right? If we go to testing lab A and they say, oh, well, this strain only has eight terpenes in it. And then we take that same sample and we run it with testing lab B and they say, oh, well, there were these 23 terpenes. Okay, does that mean that we discovered uh, 15 new new terpenes? Mm-hmm. No, pro- probably not. So I think that that's the first step. And then in terms of, um, you know, why do we keep seeing limonene, myrcene, and caryophylline? Um, <clears throat> I think, I think it, it some degree is, is forced evolution, right? If we just look at the breeding history of cannabis over the last 60 years, there was sort of just hubs um, for, for breeding. And I think in each of those hubs, whether it had been, you know, Los Angeles or uh, sort of the, the Seattle to Vancouver, BC corridor, um, you know, I think within these, these breeding hubs, there was, um, you know, artificial genetic drift into a certain certain direction. Um, so that, that's my best guess as to why we, we sort of see these, you know, only a handful of terpenes in general. Um, but then also I think a, b- a big part is the way that, that folks breed today. Um, you know, of course, strain hunters are internationally famous, uh, at this point. Um, <clears throat> that, that's the YouTube channel strain hunters, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, we should be able to, to capture, a, a much wider diversity of terpenes um, using varieties found deep in the Congo or, you know, from the Indus River Valley or wherever they might be coming from. Um, we just haven't really seen that translate on the commercial level yet. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, I think it's, it's just largely right now, the cannabis industry is so hyper-focused on potency um, that in order to achieve these super highly potent varieties that, you need to be working with a certain genetic background that's probably influencing its terpene profile in a, um, I don't want to say a non-productive way, but against diversity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And also I, I had wanted to ask as well, were all of these strains that you looked at high THC strains? They were. Okay. Um, with the exception that that Kanetsu was a, I can't recall if it was quite a one-to-one, but it was close. Uh, one-to-one THC to CBD. 
but under the, the USDA's current definition of, of cannabis versus hemp, everything would have been cannabis. Okay. And did you notice, because you also tested for cannabinoids as well. Um, That's right. With yeah. these so did you notice kind of any correlations between terpenes and um, certain minor cannabinoids? Like obviously they all have high levels of THC, but CBG or anything else that, that might be interesting to, to consumers? Um, you know, this data set was relatively small um, and there was nothing that really stood out. I think when we did a a correlation analysis between you know THC on one axis and terpene or not THC but total cannabinoids on one axis axis and and uh, total terpenes on the opposite axis. And we had a correlation value of somewhere on zero point seven. So you know it, that definitely when you have high of one, you have high of the other. I'm not saying that it's causative at all, but we did notice that trend. <clears throat> okay, and then you also mentioned Leafly. And I wanted to ask you, because we had um, Nick Tacomas on this podcast, uh, I think it was episode 19, and he had kind of talked about how, you know, using the Leafly data and using data from different laboratories as well, they had kind of identified three big chemical types among high THC levels. So I think the the three ones, if I'm remembering correctly, was like high, like myrcene, pinene, um, limonene, beta-carophylline, and then high terpinaline and, and CBG. So I'm wondering, and um, this is just because I know science is always, it's always either building building on other science or, you know, disproving it to some, we're always learning new things. So I'm wondering if you found, um, if you're, yeah, if you're familiar with this research or, you know, if you found your research kind of, uh, yeah, like building upon this in any way, or um, if it was consistent with these, these findings, cause that, that episode even was several years ago. So I'm just kind of wondering what, what the current state yeah. is now. Yeah. So, um, I believe this research that we're talking about, my research here was published ahead of, um, what Nick's work is, uh, covered. And I'm yeah, very familiar with, with Nick and, and, uh, the work that he's done. Very good work. Um, and even then, right. So this was our paper published in 2019, the work took place in the summer of 2017. Uh, so this was before Nick was, was at Leafly. So I think at the time it was mostly, uh, Leafly was user curated, uh, a lot more than it is today. Um, <clears throat> but, um, no, ab absolutely. And I think in this study, we, we basically said, Hey, the, um, what was annotated as a sativa on Leafly fell into a categorization based on its its terpenes and cannabinoids. Um, but we really only had two groups because we were just calling things, you know, Leafly said it was an indica, Leafly said it was a sativa. Um, but we did see that the, the strains that were called those things had similar um, terpene and cannabinoid profiles to each other. Um, <clears throat> so I would definitely say, yeah, Nick's work of, um, you know, refining that classification into three, three big groups of chemotypes. Um, I think that they definitely built off of the, off of, you know, what we were laying down. Okay. Okay. Good to know. And yeah. And then I do kind of understand that this paper, you know, that we've been, we've been talking about is a, a few years old. So yeah. I'm wondering if you could tell us more about what kind of research you've been working on in these past few years since, since this paper was published. Yeah, and the time uh, since that paper was published, um, I went out with one of the 
co-authors on the paper, Mark Lang. Um, we, we started a company, uh, Dewey Scientific, and we partnered with a molecular plant breeder and we, we breed cannabis varieties. Um, <clears throat> we have published some of the work there uh, that we've been working on. We, we published a paper on um, the characterization of the first powdery mildew uh, resistance gene. Um, so you can find that. That's, that's open access on Frontiers in Plant Pathology, I believe. Um, and then other things on the research end, we've, we've been, um, you know, I, earlier I mentioned testing labs need a unified method, uh, for reporting. Um, so we, we have a paper coming out very shortly on, um, just sort of a method for anybody to use, um, <clears throat> for tripping testing. I shouldn't say anybody, anybody with a gas chromatograph, um, can use it, um, <clears throat> But beyond beyond just terpenes, we do explore other uh, volatile compounds that are most likely contributing to the aroma and essence of cannabis. Um, so we, we talk about that in that research paper. Um, and yeah, beyond that, we've we've just been doing a, a lot of breeding. One thing you know, in the, the the realm of terpenes and breeding, is that it's uh, it, it's not crystal clear. Uh, right now, at least based on the data that we've generated and, and what we've been looking at, but um, you know what I mean by it's not crystal clear. You know, we 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 you can take let's say uh, take twenty six lines, uh, run those for their their trooping content, um, and let's say that three of those twenty six were siblings. You would expect that those siblings would be more similar to each other than to any of the other things that were tested that may have been unrelated. Um, we have failed to prove that hypothesis that siblings will have a more similar terpene profile than things that are not related to it at all. Um, so that makes breeding for terpenes pretty difficult. Um, <clears throat> and we, at this point, we can't really say why, you know, I think my best, my best guess and hypothesis is that, um, so in the cannabis genome, terpene genes are generally found in clusters. And, you know, I think there's been about four or five clusters identified um, so that, <clears throat> but, but in the breeding process, you know, you might only get two terpene synthases from each cluster to actually be expressed or to actually, you know, produce the terpenes they're responsible for. Um, <clears throat> and so I think in, in the breeding process, when you get that genetic crossover, that which terpene is going to come out of that cluster uh, is very difficult to predict as of today. Um, so it, it, it is a problem that we're working on, um, but it's, it's definitely a problem. Uh, we, we just cannot predict what kind of terpene profile we're going to get out of a, a node cross. Okay. Wow. You just said a lot of interesting things in there that I want to, I want to come back to. Um, but yeah, let's, so, so that was kind of the original hypothesis and with that, that you would be able to breed sibling strains and for certain terpenes, but that doesn't seem to work. Is that unique? Does that happen in other crops and other plants? Or is that something that's unique to cannabis? You know, I'm not not really sure how that works in other crops. Um, you know, if we, we talk about crops that we grow for their terpene profiles, you know, we're talking about mint, we're talking about rosemary, or, um, you know, the essential oil plants for the most part. Mint, for example, is not really bred. Uh, mint is sterile, at least peppermint is a sterile plant. So everything there is, is clone. Um, <clears throat> so peppermint, 
for the most part, should have the same terpene profile um, with the exception of, you know, differences in growth conditions. Um, <clears throat> and other than that, I'm not super familiar with, with any of the crops that we use for their, their terpenes uh, with their breeding programs. I think for the most part, it's, it's clonal, um, clonal propagation opposed to sexual propagation. Okay. Okay. And that is something, so, so that is something it, it, that it sounds like you'll, you'll continue to work on, or do you think just in general, it's going to be more successful to kind of breed different varieties? If you want, uh, no, if you we'll, want to get high levels of terpenes, I guess it's my question. Yeah, no, I think, um, well, well, in terms of getting high levels of terpenes, yeah, you can definitely, and, and we, we've shown this through our breeding program, you can definitely increase the terpene content, mm-hmm. total terpene content, but it, it's getting to that point of predicting which terpenes are going to be there. Um, that, that's been elusive. Um, I think, yeah, with enough time um, and enough genetic stability um, that that will get there. Uh, uh-huh. But it's, you know, cannabis is a difficult crop. When we, when we talk about plant breeding, um, most plant breeding programs rely on um, inbred populations or near inbred populations. Uh, cannabis has been very elusive and it's very difficult to generate inbreds or near inbreds uh, simply because of a phenomenon known as inbreeding depression. Um, it's not typically found in plant science or in plant breeding, uh, but it's, you know, it's more famous in, well, in humans, right? We can't inbreed beyond moral reasons, but genetically uh, it's, it's deleterious and it's disadvantageous um, to inbreed. And it's the same with cannabis. Um, so, you know, if we use wheat as an example, wheat breeders will typically inbreed for six to seven generations before they make a hybrid cross. Um, and so what that, what the, that inbreeding does is it fixes specific traits, you know, whether it's height or, you know, grain protein content, whatever it is, um, those traits get fixed. But with cannabis, you can only inbreed, you know, two to three generations. And so you have a less uh, much lower chance of achieving that um, genetic uniformity or stabilization of a trait through inbreeding. So I think once we can sort of figure out how to, um, you know, how to, how to better make up for the, the inbreeding depression that we face with cannabis, um, that, that some of this will work out. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. And this might be more of a philosophical question, but why why does cannabis produce terpenes? What are the benefits to the plants? Yeah, I think my my best guess is <clears throat> that it's um, that the terpenes serve as some form of insecticide or uh, insect deterrent. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe this is why you know we're only getting a handful of terpene profiles out there or terpene dominance is that you know let's say. Um, you know, a particular insect pest that's notoriously invasive to mm, Nepal, you know, one of the origins of, of cannabis, uh, that, that the, the cannabis varieties from there would produce a terpene that could um, deter that pest there. Um, and then, right, maybe somewhere in Europe, it's a different pest and a different terpene. Um, so that that's that's sort of where I think terpenes arose in cannabis was pest deterrence. Um, I also think, and this one's a little bit more out there, but 
Um, right. Generally plants will produce aromas for like, only a handful of reasons. One is past deterrence another is communicating with each other. Um, and the third is attracting pollinators or attracting whatever it can to disperse its seed. Um, right. That's, that's the biological goal is to right. disperse your, your seed as far as you can. Um, so maybe, maybe the terpenes arose as a means to attract um, something that would come and eat its flower and its seeds would then travel a little while before it started to digest all of those cannabinoids, which maybe made it sleepy, takes a nap. And by the time it, that animal wakes up, um, it's time to pass those seeds to its digestive system. And therefore the plant was able to attract and then disperse its seed. I think that one's a little bit more out there and there's not as much evidence that points to that being the case. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's gotta be around um, either attracting pollinators or detracting uh, insect pests. Yeah, that's an interesting theory as well. And I think it's more difficult to test it out now that so much cannabis is being grown. Um, well, in indoor facilities, but, um, but yeah, but I, I think that one could, you know, that one could, could make sense out in the natural world for sure. Yeah. Right. There's the stone date theory that humans evolved because we started smoking weed or taking mushrooms. Exactly. Maybe, exactly. Maybe weed evolved because bears kept eating it. Yeah. <laughs> I like <laughs> that one. That's my, that's my favorite. So you also mentioned that you're, um, you're looking, you're looking at different volatile compounds beyond terpenes and beyond cannabinoids. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Um, because I feel like we focus so much on, you know, cannabinoids and then also on, on terpenes, but, but what else is in the cannabis plant? What are you finding and what are you most interested in? Yeah. So the big, the biggest one, and, uh, this was, this was published maybe 2021. Um, I can't remember the authors, um, but they basically determined that, Hey, the skunk smell is actually, it's probably not a terpene. It's probably a thiol. So a sulfur containing compound. Um, and then they even went so far to give their best guess of what they, what these compounds were uh, contributing to skunk. Um, Cause for me, for the longest time, I was like, Oh, it's myrcene. I mean, that's, that's what Leafly says. That's what, you know, uh, folks in the legacy market say. And, you know, if you smell myrcene itself, it doesn't smell skunky, but it also doesn't necessarily smell like anything else and if you're thinking skunk when you smell it yeah you sort of get stuck with that um so sulfur compounds is one one big area of uh of exploration um and then the other is in esters so when we think about like fruit flavor and aroma for the most part it's esters short chain esters that are very volatile and we perceive them as sweet and fruity um while we also, you know, characterize some cannabis varieties as sweet and fruity. Um, the other neat thing about um, esters is that they have a particularly low odor threshold. Um, so odor threshold is a measure of what is the minimum concentration of a compound before the human knows detects it. Um, and so with terpenes, you're typically measuring these in the parts per million. You know, I think, um, I think myrcene, for example, has an odor threshold of like 1.4 parts per million. If you look over at the esters, they're measured in parts per billion. And for the most part, they're measured in thousands of parts per billion. Um, so incredibly small amounts are needed to detect them. Um, so then you flip that onto the analytical side, you know, working in, in the laboratory where there's 
you know, okay, sure, there's more terpenes in that flower. And um, so the detection, the, the devices we use to detect those are going to say, oh, they're terpenes, they're terpenes. Um, but what, what might be map be masked by this is, are the esters because they're just as volatile as terpenes, if not more volatile, but we could smell them much more strongly, even if they're present in much lower concentrations. Does that make sense? Yes. Wow. That's so interesting. So could you give an example of um, another strain? Yeah. Some strains that I guess I'm just having like strawberry kush come to mind. Is that <laughs> yeah, yeah. like that, something like that? Strawberry cough is what was sitting in my head. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, something with a very or, strong fruity flavor. That's kind of these and the word the esters could you spell that yeah es e-s-t-e-r-s okay cool yeah no h okay yeah so any other examples of you know and i know we have like those skunk yeah those oh the skunky strains as well those but that's more of the sulfur compound but yeah what what other strains are, are coming to mind that you know maybe we've been misidentifying these these compounds yeah it's, i think any of um any of the you know, varieties that might point towards uh, blueberry or blackberry, or, you know, I think part of it is, is the color of the, the flower itself. Um, but I mean, if, if there is an aroma, you know, a variety that's named that way because of the aroma, I think the odds are likely, I don't want to say they're, they're, you know, high, high chance, but um, that it's, it's festers that are, are contributing to that. Of course, the terpenes could be making a play. Mm-hmm. Um, or there could but, be know, think, some correlation, do you think, between terpenes and esters that might make it difficult um, to kind of separate? Yeah, I think I would be surprised if there was um, a correlation. You know, biochemically speaking, they are two distinct pathways um, that don't have any overlap. Okay. Um, <clears throat> okay, wow. Wow, that's so interesting. And, and I mean, I... Exactly as you're saying, I'm assuming a lot of these laboratories don't even know to measure for these compounds at this point. So we don't even have that data. Yeah. So some, some labs are starting to at least talk about this at conferences, which I think is always the first step. So I was at the Emerald Conference back in March um, and a lab group was presenting a new method um, for analyzing terpenes and others, other compounds. Um, and they're calling it two-dimensional uh, gas chromatography. So right now, if you send your flower to a, a testing lab, they'll run it on a gas chromat- chromatograph in one dimension. Um, so what these guys are doing is, is two-dimensional gas chromatography. And, and through this, they're able to, right, if, if, say, an ester peak was hidden by a terpene peak, they could unmask that uh, the hidden um, ester. And, and so they, they only had a handful of samples that they were willing to discuss at the conference. Um, but they, they were seeing that a lot of, I think they were testing my memory search, correct? A lot of um, like wedding cake strains and, and um, like cookies lineage strains. Um, and that they were finding that there was, there were esters in, the, in these samples, um, but they, they didn't necessarily have the, the most comprehensive data and it was very early um mm-hmm. in that technology but I, th- I think it's it's at some point it's going to come along um, and I, I would not be surprised in the slightest if yeah cannabis has uh, esters that are contributing to its aroma much much strongly than uh the terpenes 
That's yeah, that's so interesting. Well, I'm really looking forward to learning more about that, but it sounds like the science is still pretty new and is evolving. Um, so you also mentioned, you also mentioned doing some breeding work with um, powdery mildew or, or trying to breed out powdery mildew, I guess makes more sense. Um, but yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. And, you know, I think obviously there's, there's a lot of, a lot, a lot of growers struggle with disease and look for different ways to kind of address this and um, want to avoid using pesticides or insecticides. So, yeah. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about kind of, yeah, what breeding work you, you were able to do in order to, um, kind of identify. Yeah. Just, just talk to me a little more about that. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the you know, the interest in uh, resistance to disease comes, you know, impacts three areas uh, of cannabis. First off, it impacts the cultivator, right? Right now in the cannabis space, cultivators are just getting eaten alive by market conditions. You know, California has seen a massive shrinkage in the number of farmers that are active today versus 365 days ago. Um, and so, right, if we can drive down the cost of growing, we can ensure that more people can grow. Um, and so if you can eliminate um, disease prevention from a cultivator's task list, you're, you're saving them money, you're saving them time. Um, the second area is on the consumer end. Nobody wants cannabis that's been sprayed with fungicides or pesticides. Um, so if we can breed this resistance into consumer favored varieties, well, then the consumer never needs to really worry about fungicides or pesticides. Um, and then the, the third angle is, um, <clears throat> is on just plant health itself um, and, and comparing cannabis with other horticultural crops. Um, so, you know, let's pretend that we're blueberry farmers and, this summer, we just got wiped out by, by a fungal disease and, and our crops ruined. And well, we're going to grow next year, uh, but we're really afraid of that disease coming back. So we can go to the USDA extension office and we can say, hey, we got hit with, with let's say it's fusarium. Um, what can we do for next year? They would say, oh, grow these varieties. They're at this seed bank uh, that the USDA runs down in Monterey, California. Okay, great. We are set up for next year. The cannabis cultivator does not have that. You can call the, you know, your nearest USDA extension office and they're going to tell you, oh, sorry, we don't work with cannabis. Well, what if we're hemp? Nope, sorry, we, we, we can't help you out. Um, so that that's the other angle is, is that cannabis growers need these genetic resources, these new varieties that they can grow to protect themselves. Um, so that's that's really, you know, why, why we're after this. Um, and, you know, when we first came across the powdery mildew resistance, it was sort of by just by screening lots and lots of varieties. When we started our company, um, you know, I think we, we started with a seed bank that had you know, 600 individual crosses. Uh, now we didn't grow every, every seed we had, but we grew a ton of them to start. Um, and it was in our first winter of operation and we had some growth chambers that we just hadn't quite figured out uh, how to regulate the humidity inside of them. And so we had a whole bunch of clones, you know, hundreds, hundreds of clones, from hundreds of crosses and powdery mildew set in. And it was on about 95% of all of the plants in there. Uh, but that 5% that didn't have any powdery mildew, we, you know, our, our breeder being a very smart breeder looked at that and said, okay, let's, uh, I'm going to start crossing with these. Um, so we, we took 
we took one of those varieties uh, that was just, it didn't matter the conditions. We, we started intentionally trying to give this thing powdery mildew and powdery mildew just would not grow. Um, but when we analyzed the flower from that variety, it was, you know, it, it didn't stand a chance on the commercial market. It was incredibly low yielding. Um, it's THC percentages were under 14%. Like that's, that's just not going to move off the shelf. No one's going to want to grow that. Um, so we started breeding with it. We took one of our, our, um, most potent varieties, one of our, our, the first commercial varieties we ever, uh, released, um, and crossed it with that powdery mildew variety, that resistant variety. And so we were able to improve, uh, cannabinoid potency above 25% while maintaining the powdery mildew resistance. Uh, but in doing so, we, we did, uh, what, is referred to as DNA fingerprinting. It's the, the same technology they use for like the 23andMe uh, diagnostic tests, uh, same technology. And so we did that with the, the original parents and then of the 90 or so children that we, we tested. And well, sure enough, the, the children that were um, resistant to powdery mildew had the same mutation in the same spot of the genome that the resistant parent had. So we were able to say, okay, well, we found this gene. Um, so now anything we breed with here at Dewey, we make sure that it, it has that powdery mildew resistance gene um, in it. So would you be able to breed that powdery mildew resistant variety with several different types of other strains, like high THC strains? And exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, so what, so we, that's what we've done. In the future. Yep. 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 Exactly. So that, that's, that's what we do now. You know, initially we started off, I think we called it PNW 39 was that first, uh, resistant strain. We, we, we crossed it with a variety that we called Jack's girl. Um, now we don't sell anything from that generation anymore. Um, but most of our breeding stock came from a cross with that, that PNW 39. Um, and we've, you know, we've crossed it with cookies varieties. We've crossed it with, um, you know, some old school cushions and some OGs and various hazes. Uh, we've, we've got it into a powder or a, sorry, a hemp variety. Um, so we, we've developed a powdery mildew variety of hemp. Um, and yeah, like I said, it, it is the foundation of, of our breeding program. We just, we want to make sure that every, every variety that we consider uh, commercializing is, is resistant to powdery mildew. Mm-hmm. And then how does your business model work? Are you selling those new varieties as seeds to growers? So we, we, we license uh, clonal varieties here in Washington. Okay. Um, and <clears throat> um, other than that, we, we, our, our business is actually based on uh, recreational cannabis. So we have a brand uh, here in Washington um, and it's it's also how we market test um, new new varieties that we've bred for. So we, we have a, a small subline that we, we tell the consumer, hey, this is a breeding test. Um, and then using the, the great market data that we're able to, to get back, we can see how quickly any of these test crosses sold. You know, did did the 10 uh, 10 units we sent to this particular shop in Seattle, how long did it take for them to sell those 10? Okay, well, it took three weeks. That's not great. We're, we need to improve this variety. Or, wow, this variety flew off the shelves. Let's, uh, let's bring this into our main line. And have you noticed that when you are breeding these varieties with the, um, the powdery mildew-resistant one, is anything lost 
in the in the final in like in the cross um any desirable characteristics yes so far we haven't run into any major issues um just trying to think of of what we've crossed it with and and i I would say the, the the one that's been elusive has been just like the 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 architecture of the plant um so you know some plants like to grow like shrubs others like to grow like christmas trees um we have this one variety it of course it's our highest yielder on a grams per square foot basis it sort of has like a a menorah like uh branching pattern um and i want to say we've we've been unsuccessful in combining those two traits uh, the powdery mildew resistance with the menorah branching pattern um but we have developed other high yielding varieties with the powdery mildew resistant uh characteristic cool and then are there any other diseases that you're looking at currently um yeah so we we, breeding projects with yeah, we recently um, teamed up with a, a breeder um, who has, um, I'm just going to call it gray mold resistant varieties. And I'm saying gray mold because we haven't identified the exact species. Um, we think it is botrytis, but um, we still haven't confirmed that. Um, so right now we're working on identifying the gene or genes responsible um, for the resistance to that gray mold um, because you know, after, after powdery mildew, um, I think gray mold is, is the next largest uh, economically devastating disease in the cannabis industry. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, that's, that's such exciting work. And yeah, I think you're exactly right. It comes from all angles, like cultivators, but also patients. You know, we had another episode about some of the really dangerous long-term potential health effects of um, some of these pesticides and insecticides for patients with epilepsy. So yeah, it's, it's just so important. You know, it's so important that we, we find ways to create cannabis medication without these um, chemicals. So yeah. So let's just wrap up with a a final question. I'm, I'm wondering what, yeah, well, what what are you most excited about or, or what are you most curious about going forward um in your research and what would you like to what is like the number one thing you'd like to learn about cannabis yeah um i would love to learn more about esters um <laughs> are they you know are they, are they contributing um to how we, we perceive cannabis either on the aroma end or on the user experience um, you know, i think if if you looked back five years ago um, I think a lot of very prominent researchers would look at the idea of the entourage effect and laugh at you. Um, but, you know, it seems like every week or at least every month, some new research is coming out where it's like, hey, guess what? Terpenes are interacting with our body. Um, so I think, yeah, if, if we, is there that connection with these other volatile compounds in cannabis? I think that'd be super, super interesting to learn. Yes. It sounds to me, it sounds to me like these esters are like the black holes of cannabis. So there's just so much to learn there. Yeah. Yeah. They're probably there in in very small amounts, but they probably make a big impact on on how we perceive them. Cool. Well, thank you so much for for joining us and sharing all this knowledge with us. And yeah, where can listeners find you or learn more about your business? Yeah. uh, Listeners can find me on um, LinkedIn, Twitter, 
Um, and you can learn more about our business at deweyscientific.com. Or if you are an Instagram fan, uh, you can follow our cannabis brand. Um, it's at Dewey Cannabis. Cool. Well, thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Emily. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It will help other people find us. Cannabis Science Today is so generously supported by the Agricultural Genomics Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to educating the public on scientific research findings on cannabis. If you're interested in donating to this cause or sponsoring an episode of this podcast, where we research a scientific research question or theme of your choice, please contact us through agriculturalgenomics.org.